Introducing Mindful Parenting in a Messy World with Michelle Gale. This podcast is for parents who long to be meaningfully connected to themselves and their children, even as the demands of modern life are accelerated. Enjoy a collection of supportive conversations, meditations, and nuggets of practical wisdom to help you embrace the parenting journey as your greatest potential for personal growth. Welcome to Mindful Parenting in a Messy World. I'm your host, Michelle Gale, and today I am here with Sharon Salzberg, who is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society. She is the author of now 10 books, including her latest book, Real Love. And she travels the world teaching meditation, mindfulness, loving kindness, and compassion. And I'm so grateful that she's here with us. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to to see you and, and talk to you. Yes, wonderful to have you. So I am, I'm not quite through the book. It just came out two days ago, Real Love, but I am, I'm in love with it already. <laughs> I, am, I, I always suggest your seminal book on loving kindness to people when they're getting interested in these practices. And I wonder, um, you know, what inspired this book? It's book number 10. What made you decide to, to write this? It's book number 10. I, <laughs> there were many things. One is... Um, you know, uh, many years ago, I had a different book come out called A Heart as Wide as the World. And mm. and that was a, a very um, late in the game title change mm. that came from me. And so there was kind of a big scramble to find art uh, to, to make the cover because that had already been designed for previous titles. So um, the publisher, that publisher was sending me lots of options. And one option they sent me was the, it was like a Van Gogh print. I can't remember the name of the painting. And it was like a big yellow sky. And then down in the bottom, there were a few crumbled huts. And it was like a totally devastated scene. And, yeah. and I said, God, that looks like it should be the cover for the Grapes of Wrath or something <laughs> like that. And, uh, but I was uncertain of my own view. So I showed it to a lot of friends. And this one friend took a look at it. And she said, you know, that looks like a world that could use some love. Oh. And, of course, it wasn't the cover we chose. But that phrase stayed with me. Oh. for all these years. And I looked around and I thought, you know, this really does look like a world that could use some love. It really does. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Beautiful. You know, I, um, I wrote a little, I wrote some notes as I was reading it in the last few days. And, you know, specifically for parents, a little phrase that you wrote that I pulled out was um, uh, feeling incomplete inside ourselves. We search for others to complete us. And I come across that in my work with parents quite often where you can really get that sense that a parent is living through their child. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a wonderful quote by Carl Jung that I'll, 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 I'll ruin, but you know, something like there's nothing worse than the life of an unlived parent you know, for, for a child. So I wonder if you could speak to that about this kind of incompleteness that we often feel inside ourselves and how these practices support that. Yeah, I mean, I think in any relationship that, you know, is is problematic because we're not authentically presenting as who we are. And uh, there's so much need for somebody to fit our image of who they should be that we can't quite see them for who they are. And it's such a painful, painful state. In the Buddhist teaching, um, he... In the text, they use this example for the state of equanimity. So equanimity means balance. It doesn't mean indifference or withdrawal it means a real balance like perspective Mm 
And the peace that comes from perspective, because we're seeing truly, yeah, like, I want you to be happy and I can't make your decisions for you, that kind of thing, you know. Um, So the example they often use is a parent whose child is now an adult because you love this being, you, you care about them, you have compassion for their hurts, and you realize, you know what, it's not up to me to decide what you're going to do for a living, who your partner should be all these things. And so there needs to be a kind of letting go, letting that being make their own choices, even as you feel this tremendous connection. So I was doing like a Skype session with a friend who has a yoga, yoga teacher training program in California. And I used that example. And apparently the room, which I couldn't quite see the scope of, was full of young people with young children And they're all like clamoring to say, it's not just adult children. (laughs) You know, that's the way it is with my kid. They're really young, you know. Wow. You have to let them be who they are for that kind of authentic love to shine. Yeah. And that's difficult because there's just like surrendering that's really hard to do because we want to control it (laughs) and we want to make sure everything's okay. Yeah, that's hard. Um, You know, I also wrote a little note we can't gain from others what we're unable to give to ourselves, right? So if we're not giving ourselves that love, you know, we think, oh, we're giving everything to our child and that must mean we love them more than anything else in the world. But it's not always the case, is it? No, it's like, you know, what is now really a cliche because it's used so often, but it's used so often because it's the perfect example. Um, You know, if you're on an airplane and the cabin pressure drops and the oxygen masks descend, put your own on first before you try to help anybody else. And I was actually some time ago talking to a writer friend of mine and I said, you know, I don't think I can use that. Every like teacher I know of meditation uses it. Every teacher I know of meditation who writes, writes about it. I don't think I can use it. And she said, you know, I was sitting on an airplane just the other day and they made that announcement. And the woman in the seat next to me said, I could never do that. I could never put my own mask on first. And then I said, oh, maybe I can use it. You know, it's still like provocative and challenging and difficult. But think of that, you know, it's it's so obvious that I think we we can love and and give, but maybe not endlessly without somehow restoring the sense of who we are and our own own wholeness, our own fullness. I think generosity turns into a kind of martyrdom. We get filled with resentment. Um, The actions may look the same on the surface, but they're coming from such a different place. And ultimately the actions have nowhere to source, you know? And and so that giving, that caring, that real true listening, it's not happening anymore. Mm. What do you say to a parent or anyone who says, this is too selfish, right? It's too selfish. I was leading a group of um, parents yesterday and we were doing loving kindness and, and most of them, almost 90% of the room, it was the first time that they'd experienced the practice and they all reported it was difficult and that they didn't feel a lot um, while they were doing it. Like, what do you say to people who say it just feels selfish? Well, I think there, there are actually a few questions in, in what you said. Um, a lot of people say it seems too selfish. It's too selfish to take five minutes a day for myself. It's too selfish to take 10 minutes a day yeah. for myself. And I usually point out the irony that for virtually any of us, somebody said, here's this thing you can do for 20 minutes a day. 
really help your friend, we do it. Yes. You know, but to help us, it just seems wrong. But I think if we really look discernment and, and wakefulness and intelligence will tell us you, no one can go on forever without renewing. You, it's just not built like that, you know, this world. And, and so it's a time where ultimately you will be able to give so much more fully to others if you replenish, if you renew, if you have resilience, for example. And it's just like, um, you know, sleep can seem like a luxury too, but it's really not. No. You know, because one's reactions when you're really exhausted are not that good, you know. Yeah. So it's in just that same way. The question of not feeling anything, I think, is is slightly different in that um, it's a tricky kind of practice, and I think all meditation practice, in a way, reflects this, but especially loving kindness in that uh, it takes a little while, you know, it's not going to happen, like, in, you know, five minutes, and, yeah. and um, but it doesn't take forever, and the results you want to see, we all want to see in the change, you know, within ourselves happen, but the way you can tell is in your real life, your actual life, mm. not in that 10 minute period of day when you're actually doing the discipline mm. of it or the training of it. And I've seen that in myself. I've seen that in countless students, you know, and sometimes people see the change in us before we see it in ourselves. Um, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, I was meditating every day and I thought I would stop because nothing was happening. And then my kids came to me and said, please don't stop. You're much better. Oh, you know, you're not so angry and it's so reactive. You're, you really take time for me, you know, all those things. And, mm. and those are the things we will see in ourselves as well, but you may not have some dramatic breakthrough sitting on the cushion like, wow, I finally <laughs> love everybody. Great. You know, it's not going to be that way. Yeah, my kids will often ask me if I've meditated. <laughs> it's okay, my friends ask me, are you reading your own books? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly. Um, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking of a piece in your book um, where you're talking about self-love as an unfolding process. And you tell yeah. the story of when you had first, I believe, opened the Insight yeah. Society yeah. and you, you didn't have group coming for a week or so, so you all did a retreat together for a week yeah. and you did loving kindness for the whole week and you felt nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you got called away. You all had to go somewhere in a hurry and you dropped something and you dropped it and you said, you said, Oh, you're such a klutz and I love you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that was, that was one of the major, major uh, moments when I thought, look at that. You could have given me anything in the course of that week. And I could not have honestly said something was happening, but something was happening. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is that we, we tend to kind of identify love as a particular emotional range, mm. you know, but maybe it's not in a given moment, maybe it's not even very emotional, you know, maybe it's just like a shift in worldview or a sense of inclusion, you know, whereas normally we'd maybe go into a store and look right through someone and now we're looking at them oh. and we're thinking, oh, that's a person just like me. Look at that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's not like you're, you know, dizzyingly in love with them and you're going to take them home or anything, you know, but it's like, oh, here we are. You yeah. know, there's some, there's some connection here. 
That's beautiful. What are some of the other things that people tend to report? Because you've worked with so many people over the years. So what are the what are the different things that people can be looking out for? So you just gave a beautiful example. I think that would be really helpful for people to hear. Yeah, I mean, I think it, that sense of inclusion. I think, um, I mean, classically, uh, loving kindness in particular is the antidote to fear. And I think I've certainly experienced that in, in every level. So, for example, when I first began teaching meditation, uh, I was terrified of public speaking. Mm-hmm. And the format of our intensive retreats is we uh, work with people throughout the day and practice. We sit together or there's um, questions and answers or things like that. And then in the evening, there's a formal discourse. And so the first actual retreat, we were invited to teach. It was Joseph Goldstein and myself. It was a month-long retreat, and he had to give every discourse every night because I couldn't, I couldn't do it. You know, I was just so scared. And he was just here last night, sort of a book party for me, and he was telling the story, and he said people would go and yell at him, like, why won't you let her speak? You know, why won't you let her have a voice? He said, I'd love a night off. You know, why don't you talk to her? But I was, like, way too scared. And then... One day, a long time later, I thought, you know, there is this one talk I can give on loving kindness because there's a guided meditation for loving kindness. And so if my mind goes totally blank, which was my big fear, like I would just sit there like frozen. If my mind goes totally blank, I can always go into the guided meditation. Maybe no one will notice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and so, and so I gave like, I can only give the one talk, so probably a year or more went by, and I have like piles of ta- of old cassette tapes of my giving one talk, <laughs> you know. And uh, and then one day it struck me, you know what? They're all loving kindness talks in a way because we don't sit there in that context in front of a room full of people to impart our expertise, you know. Mm. It's it's because we care so much about the process, and we have so much confidence in these tools, and we want people to you know, to have confidence themselves and their ability to use the tools. And, yeah. and, you know, it's a very different kind of being together. It's all about connection. Yeah. And that was the point at which I could give other talks. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, there's people that say, what do they say? They've done studies and people say public speaking is, they're more afraid of that than death. It's true. It's true. I mean, than death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. That's big. That's pretty big. Yeah, that's pretty big. That's pretty big. Um, what are some ideas that you might offer to parents or to anyone else who's listening about how, specifically to parents, you know, that you may have worked with in the past, of how to incorporate you know, these types of practices in with their child, in their mm-hmm. day-to-day lives? Mm-hmm. What are the little things that you think they might do? Well, I, I find, I mean, of course, you know, some of what we were talking about before, like, don't be afraid to take a little bit of time for yourself. It's really not wrong. Yeah. Um, it, it's really a beautiful thing to have a sense of replenishment yeah. and some wherewithal inside. Because, you know, when you're exhausted and you feel depleted. Grumpy. So, yeah, you, you're incredibly grumpy. grumpy. You can't tolerate anything. And, yes. you know, everything's irritating and it's just awful. And so... Yeah. It's a tremendous way not just to find inner rest, but also strength, yeah. you know, and perspective yeah. on things. And um, so there's that. And and then there's, uh, I know a lot of people who will do, especially loving kindness practice with their children, 
uh, who seem to like it quite a lot. And yeah. I've written curricula for schools on loving kindness. And as long as it's, you know, age appropriate and uh, usually for younger children, sort of concrete, like um, what does it feel like when someone holds your hand when you cross the street? You know, that's, that's like feeling safe, right? Mm -hmm. And offering loving kindness through simple phrases to kids who are your friends or kids are usually your friends, but you're mad at right now, you know, or yeah. things like that. And people do it as a bedtime ritual. Yeah. Bedtime is um, a sweet time. For yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. It's a sweet time. You know, I rem you're reminding me of a story when I was teaching um, to, I was teaching a preschool class and, and, you know, it was a very short 10 minute lesson, but a little girl broke her clip and she got very upset, just crying. And she moved, you know, away from the circle. And the teachers, you know, were trying to help her. And the kids are all, and, that, and so we just had them all put their hands on their heart. And, you know, let's send her some love. Yeah, you know, let's feel right. what she's feeling. And everything settled down. And she settled down. And she was able to come back into the group very quickly. Yeah. yeah. So and even exercises with the breath. I mean, I know you know. Alianat Munsmith and Andy Gonzalez from the Holistic Life Foundation yeah. in Baltimore, who are like so great. And uh, there's a story they told me that's in my book about um, this little girl. I think she was about seven or eight years old and uh, very poor. And uh, so wore like really raggedy clothes and things like that. So the kids used to bully her and tease her and kind of torment her. And she'd always fight. She was a real fighter and she was always getting into trouble and so they taught her how to meditate yeah. and you know not suppress or deny her anger but know how to deal with it differently yeah. like breathe and you know let it be there but then let it go and decide what you want to do so one day they said they walked into the room and she had this other kid up against the wall like holding her and she said you're just lucky I know how to meditate <laughs> she dropped her went off and sat in the corner and just like composed herself <laughs> Wow. So that's really great. <laughs> that's really great. That is really great. It's yeah. actually kind of, you know, it just struck me. What a beautiful moment. And we realize what self-possession, like, you know what? I'm stronger than it seems, you know, like I can do this. Yes. I don't have to just be undermined by that habit of anger. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, I mean, it is habit. It, it seems like, um, I think you talked about your book and how it really is this counter to um to fear and counter to the inner critic yeah right i mean because it's loud it's really loud do you ever have people start with loving kindness if you're just teaching meditation for the first time is it okay to start i've never really mm -hmm. thought about that just to yeah. start that way or do you want to do meditation and get to know your thoughts first or does it matter it, I, I honestly don't think it matters it's good for people to have some idea like since I teach loving kindness, um, which is only one of the possible ways, but I teach it a lot using phrases mm -hmm. like, may I be happy? May you be happy? It can get to be a little labored after a while and you just want to sit there, you know, and not be doing so much. So it's good for people to have that alternative. And also some very difficult feelings might arise, you know, grief, uh, anger, things like that. And, um, within the context of loving kindness, there are things we do, like maybe that's a good time to send loving kindness to yourself because those are actually kind of painful states, but maybe they're too strong. And then you have to drop the loving kindness and have the skill to be able to be with those states in a different way. Mm. 
and when they recede somewhat, then you go back to the loving kindness. So it's good to be, for people to have a little bit, but actually inadvertently kind of created an entire class of, of meditator because I went to Burma in 1985, which was about 14 years after I'd started my practice in India. Wow. And I went to Burma to do intensive loving kindness practice because it is its own methodology. And uh, I came back and I started teaching it in the States. And it never occurred to me with that first retreat to have a prerequisite that people should have some mindfulness background. So I, I kind of created a whole group of people for whom loving kindness was their first practice. Wow. <laughs> and I have ever since. I've never put a prerequisite on those courses. Uh, because for some people, it's actually easier. You know, you're channeling mental energy. There's a place for that to go. Um, teachings on love and compassion may be quite familiar from other traditions or just from, you know, humanistic interest. Um, it, it can be easier for some. Mm, I mean, and so it's really kind of a concentration yeah, that yeah. people have. Um, do you, are you, could you talk a little bit about the science behind these practices that, that you've, you've been hearing about and um, people love to hear the science? Yeah, no, yeah. I'm not a scientist. I should say that. I mean, as far as I, I know, a great deal of the research has happened on mindfulness, which is, yeah. you know, a particular set of techniques. Yeah. Uh, but there's an increasing body of research that's been done and being done on loving kindness and compassion. There was a fantastic study out of Emory University um, in the foster care system of Georgia, where they were invited in, they were teaching the kids, and it was a uh, there's a Tibetan teacher on uh, faculty there. So it was, it was a form of loving kindness and compassion. Um, and they got fantastic results. They uh, were using a lot of biological markers at like cortisol levels and things like that, stress hormones. And um, interestingly, that was there maybe a few weeks before their final um, testing. And, at that point, interestingly enough, and it almost refers to things we were talking about before, uh, the stress hormones of the kids was like radically down, but they weren't reporting yet that they felt that different. Oh, interesting. It's like they didn't have the languaging, that, you know, maybe the emotional language and terms. And, but a few weeks later, then they were reporting that, you know, so their minds got kind of caught up with their bodies in a way. Yeah. Um, so that was one, you know, very notable. Uh, Barbara Fredrickson in University of North Carolina does a lot of study with loving kindness meditation. Oh, really? I haven't, um, seen, I haven't seen any of yeah. those studies. Yeah. She's, she's a positive psychologist. And so to elicit a positive state, she uses loving kindness meditation. Mm. Um, and, you know, so it's just, it's very interesting that it's really, it's like the wave is, is starting. And Tanya Singer has some of the most interesting uh, research, I think. She's a neuroscientist in Germany. And uh, she talks about uh, the difference between empathy and compassion. And that the different, she says they're actually different regions of the brain. Wow. And empathy would be when, you know, say we see someone in distress and we resonate with that. It's like a felt sense of like, ooh that likely hurt and compassion would be one particular response 
to that resonance, you know, because we might sense someone is hurting and we're frightened by that. We want to run away or we sense they're hurting and we blame them. Like I gave you perfectly good advice six months ago, you know, if you don't want to listen, you wouldn't be in such a sorry state or yeah. uh, we may be so exhausted, you know, so beleaguered, we're just like, I can't bear it. Or, and many others, or we might have the compassionate response, which is to move toward. Yeah to see if we can be of help. So we say empathy is a necessary but not sufficient condition for compassion to arise. So empathy is when we're kind of tuning in with it. We're feeling it within ourselves. And then compassion is the action. That's right. Yeah, and I love Kristen Neff does so many wonderful things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted to study with her. At, and you, uh, I've never been on retreat with training. <laughs> I know, another training. I know, we were talking about all of my trainings before we got started. How, you know, just to go backwards a little bit, because I didn't ask you this question, how, how did the path for you lead to loving kindness being, being such a big focus in your work yeah, in all these decades? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I went to India in 1970. I was a uh, junior in college. And the university had a, like an independent study program. And if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world, theoretically for just a year, and then come back to your final year. So I I had taken an Asian philosophy course. I really wanted to learn how to meditate. I'd come from a very fractured, chaotic, traumatic childhood. And uh, I was deeply unhappy, but also naive. Like I didn't, you know, I'd never been in therapy. I'd never really looked within. And I had some instinct which I look back on, I think, whoa. But, you know, taking the Asian philosophy course, I heard about meditation and I had some instinct. If I could learn how to meditate, it would really help me. So I put that together with the independent study program and I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. So I said, okay. So I went off in, in the fall of 1970. And uh, by January of 1971, I, I entered my first intensive meditation retreat. That's where I learned in that context. And, and at the very end of that retreat, which was really a mindfulness retreat, the teacher led, um, who's S.N. Goenka, he led a period of loving kindness practice. It was almost a kind of ceremonial way of saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. And I heard it and I thought, oh, you know, that's that's part of really why I'm here. Like, mm-hmm to love myself differently, to love others differently. And, but it was many years before I had the opportunity to really study that intensively. Yeah, and um, Burma, why, I, what was going on in Burma? Uh, uh, the previous year, we'd brought this Burmese teacher to the Insight Meditation Society, and yeah. I'd sat with him for three months. And um, somewhere in the course of that sitting, uh, I was suffering a lot in a good way, but I didn't like it that much, you know? And, yeah. and uh, I, I said something to him like, um, why don't you teach me loving kindness? You know, it's like, I'll have a much better time. I'll feel better. Yeah. And he laughed and he said, no. But then he said, come to Burma next year. Wow. And I did. And you did. And that, wow. was, that was an intensive three months of loving kindness. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we only have about five minutes left or so. Time goes by too fast. I wonder, um, what are some of the parts of the book that your favorite parts that 
you know, that you want to highlight as people are reading. I'm sure it's your book. So you love all of it. <laughs> are there any of the, any, and I haven't gotten through it all yet. So what are, what are the parts of the book that you feel are really, you know, those nuggets that, that people can take away with them? Um, I mean, I think there are different uh, nuggets in each section, you know? Yeah, and so yeah. uh, when I, I read the book out loud for um, the audio version and mm-hmm. I thought, oh, it's too long. <laughs> you know, it's because I was in this booth. Yes. It's actually when I saw it, it's like, oh, it's not too long. But yeah. uh, I think this should have been three books. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think for uh, the first section, it is really what we've been talking about, that love for oneself is not selfish. It's not narcissistic. Yeah. It's not coming from that kind of bleakness. It's really, it's a potent and beautiful sense of, of resource inside of oneself that uh, and love for another. There are many parent-child stories in there. Um, the first meeting I had with a group trying to hear their stories and understand, this woman talked about her relationship with her son, who was maybe in his early 20s and uh, had a drug problem and you know her uncertainty about how to relate. And she said to me, I think the title of your book should be Real Love, Simple But Not Easy. You know, which yeah. is, yeah. Simple, not it's easy. not easy, you know, so it's more a question. And we know the truth, but we need to live it, you know, which is why it comes down to practice. It's almost like muscle memory, you know. Yeah. Okay, I can start over. I can lose touch with the moment. I can come back, things like that. And then the third part of the book, which is like love for everybody, uh, love for all beings, love for life itself, um, is of course difficult to understand. Yeah. And uh, I have kind of a favorite story in there. I, I got a, the chance once to spend the day with this man named Miles Horton, who started a thing called the uh, Highlander Folk School. It used to be called that, which was like a training school for early civil rights people like Rosa Parks trained there and uh, early environmental people. And so he asked me what I did, and I talked about teaching loving kindness meditation. And then he said to me, oh, Marty, Martin Luther King Jr., he said, Marty used to say to me, you've got to love everybody. And I used to say, no, I don't. I only have to love the people who deserve to be loved. And he said, Marty would laugh, and he would say, oh, no, you've got to love everybody. Wow. And until I wrote this book, I, I kind of quite rarely told that story, but... I noticed that every time I did tell the story, somebody would say, well, yeah, look what happened to him. He got assassinated as though there were cause and effect there. Wow. And as though if Martin Luther King had been like nasty, you know, and like he hateful, survived. he would have been fine, you know? Yeah. But we kind of, our culture tells us that. Right? Yeah. Isn't that tough. interesting? You got to be strong. You got to, right. you've got to fight. And where is strength really? Yeah. So I find that fascinating. Oh, my headphones keep falling up. <laughs> um, you know, so, yeah. and it's such an opportunity we have to really look at that. And especially if you're, you know, raising children, like, where is strength really? Yeah. And where's happiness going to be found? And, yeah. 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 I was sitting with the, um, sitting up with my son watching, watching a baseball game last weekend. And, you know, one of the kids mm-hmm. got hit hard. I mean, it looked like he got hit hard and he went down for a little while and there was a, dad next to me who said, you know, get him up, you know, that's nonsense. Like I would, you know, I would have, have it 
with my son if he did that. And I thought, wow, like we don't allow these young boys to feel the pain they're feeling. We have to like shove it down. So that really speaks to that to me where Mm -hmm. we want to be able to, to feel it all. Right. And not, it doesn't have to look one way. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Any, any last words, Sharon, to share about the book before we close? Um, it's fresh off the presses. <laughs> it like, wow. off the presses. Read it. <laughs> Two days old. <laughs> Two days old. Read it. It's beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with me and sharing yourself with my listeners. And uh, yeah, just for the work you do in the world. I just appreciate you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. All right. We're going to sign off. May you meet this moment fully. May you meet this moment with kindness towards yourself and others. Thanks for listening to Mindful Parenting in a Messy World with Michelle Gale. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give us is to share our podcast with a friend and give us some stars and a favorable review at iTunes.